0: On that note, and finally, please open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. Uh, We're going to be in chapter eleven again. We we decided a few weeks ago that we would we would pause at this point. We're not really pausing, but we would stop at a. We're not even stopping. What am I doing? Chapter eleven. We would focus on prayer for four weeks because this is the Lord's prayer, or what we're calling the disciples' prayer, uh, found in Luke chapter eleven, verses one to four. And uh, it's, uh, it's interesting. We decided that our outline was going to be for four weeks. Last week, we looked at our Father, and we dug into um, who He is, who our Father in heaven literally is. And the purpose of that was so that we can orient our hearts when we pray, our Father, that we can do that with all of our hearts. And there aren't any limitations in our minds because of our views of maybe earthly fathers who have failed us, or we as earthly fathers who have failed Um, No, instead we can look to our Heavenly Father who is perfect in every way and loves us with a perfect Father love. So this week we're going to be looking at two words, kingdom come. Well, the, the actual petition is your kingdom come. Then next week daily bread, and then in the final week, forgive and deliver us. I've already warned you in advance that we might split that last week up into two. We'll see how that goes and how the Holy Spirit instructs us. So this morning, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the passage again, Luke chapter 11, verses 1 to 4. Also going to read the one verse from Matthew chapter 6 that relates to our subject for today. So read with me, beginning in Luke chapter 11, verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And Jesus said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. Matthew six, ten. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, once again we thank you. We thank you so much for this wonderful opportunity to be here today and to be under your word. So, Father, we just pray today that as we, we uh, consider these words of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we, we thank you that Jesus said, this is the way that you are to pray. And that's why we, we refer to this as a, the disciples' prayer. And, Father, I just pray that for every one of us here today as disciples or those who are considering, following, looking to follow Jesus, which is a disciple, a learner, a follower of Jesus, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would, you would speak to us today. You would take this scripture, these words that Luke has recorded and that I'm speaking about from the things that you've given to me. And Father, I just pray, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would use them mightily. You would use them mightily. I pray this in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. So as most of you know who've been coming to the Rock for, I don't know, seven, eight, nine years, maybe even one year. Uh, you probably have come to the conclusion that Glenn likes sports, right? I I like sports. I I like hockey in particular. I am a diehard, uh, so far, Canuck fan. Season doesn't look very good, but that's okay. We're going to get a high draft pick. Amen? It's an awesome thing. That's one of some of my fondest memories, quite frankly, of uh, uh, my youth, but also just learning, learning from the arena of sports, not just hockey, but from the arena of sports. I think it was only a few months ago, and I was, I was kind of struggling with this as an illustration because I think it was only a few months ago that I talked about that great win. Remember, Team Canada, 1972, you know, we defeated the Russians, Yes, it was awesome. I only spoke about that a few weeks ago, and, and, and here I am again, back in that particular glory point in time. And so just consider this a sequel, okay? <laughs> this is just a sequel, but it's an interesting story. As many of you know, the hero of the day, the hero of the series was a man by the name of Paul Henderson, right? He was the one who scored. He scored the winning goal in the last three games. It was, it was amazing. I mean, they needed to win all of the games in Russia, basically well, the last three for sure, in order to win the series. He scored the winning goal in the last three games. And of course, the game winner is the one that sealed the deal, right? And and it it just became an amazing thing. It made him an international, well, a national hero for sure. And and really, if you look at sports uh, uh, magazines and even historians, they will tell you this is, they will suggest that this moment in time, this goal and this victory was the greatest moment in Canadian sport. Now, Some people would say in history, like, I don't know about that. Well, i put it up there. It was amazing, right? It really was amazing. But there's more to Paul's story, much more to Paul's story. He was, as a young man, a man who dreamt. Of course, every boy's dream, if you grow up in Toronto, you know, cheering for the Maple Leafs, which is futile, <clears throat> like cheering for the Canucks. Your dream is to make the NHL, to play on that ice in front of those people, It's a dream. And and in fact, for a lot of boys, it's like not only a dream, but you pray, dear God, I'll be good. (laughs) Just help me make the NHL. Uh, Paul Henderson prayed that. He dreamt that. And as a junior, he had had a mediocre junior career. He did get drafted eventually by the Detroit Red Wings, but didn't get played a lot. There he had some injuries, and then he got traded to the Toronto Maple Leafs. Woohoo! And and he became essentially like a second or a third line uh, winger, and, and he was he was considered a good player, but not a star, not a superstar. And then, interestingly enough, he gets chosen to be on this team, like. To be on a team that's like stars, like Bobby Orr, who didn't end up getting to play. Did anybody know these names I'm mentioning? Uh, looking at some blank faces. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and this is young people who said that, so that's, great. that's awesome. But he was chosen. Here's why he was chosen. They wanted a team of character, but they also wanted a team that was diverse and, and could actually maybe handle these Russians. So he was known to be a good defensive player, and he was also known for his speed, very fast. Uh, great skater and... Uh, so it was interesting. He had dreamt of this day, he had prayed for this opportunity, and now it was here. And then he goes over there and he scores those winning goals, and I mean, the rest is history. He's still talked about it on the anniversaries, every 10 years, and, and so forth. But what happened next was not what he or anyone else expected. After arriving home, he was a national hero the media coverage and the coverage of him and his family. The adulation was beyond anything he could have ever imagined. He couldn't believe it. I mean, he was being spoken in terms of like any other superstar. And he didn't go being a superstar, but he came home that way. Initially, the, uh, of course, this was awesome, but the high soon wore off for Paul. In his autobiography, he, re- he reveals that he struggled to adjust to his newfound popularity and while he appreciated the support from fans and the business opportunities, the endorsements that came, it created that it created, he grew increasingly frustrated with what was going on. He also shares in his autobiography that this intruded greatly into his personal life and the life of his children and the life of his wife. In fact, his, his property in his home in, in the west part of Toronto was being ransacked. People were like t- taking picket fence pieces and everything off of his house as memorabilia. He hated it. What had been a glorious thing, what he had dreamt about, turned into something they never, ever wished would happen. Well, he ended up actually, um, sadly, uh, he wrote that the fame left him less satisfied than he'd ever been in his life. The stress and pressure and the dissatisfaction with his relationship with his team, the Toronto Maple Leafs, and his boss, who wouldn't give him a raise based on his glory and his popularity, he eventually turned to alcohol, and depression set in. is what he dreamed about. It was remarkable. Then, less than three years later, Paul Henderson heard the gospel. A friend shared the gospel with Paul. And following that, he gave his life to Christ. And after finishing his hockey career, he decided to enter seminary to become a minister. But before he could finish, after a couple of years, he heard about an organization called Campus Crusade for Life, which... Was now, is now called Power to Change, and he became a speaker and an emissary with that ministry from that day in 1983, I believe, until today. I think if Paul Henderson was to speak to you and I about prayer, when it comes to prayer, I believe Paul Henderson would say these words of advice to every one of us in this room and to everyone. Be careful what you wish for. Be careful what you pray for. Your sermon title for today is Kingdom Come. This is extremely creative of me. I want to to tell you that up front. But but look at this. We're going to look at it in three ways, I hope, this morning to unpack this. Number one, your your kingdom come. Number two, your kingdom come. appreciate the influence. Number three, your kingdom come. It's really amazing in these three words what I hope to show you today. Number one, your kingdom come. Verse 2 says of Luke chapter 11, and he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. So you'll remember from last week that we learned that Luke's version of this prayer is shorter than Matthew's version of this prayer. And it's an important point, and actually what historians and commentators will tell you is that they believe that this prayer was actually, um, this teaching was given by Jesus in Luke, in his record, a few months later than Matthew's. And we know that's probably true because Jesus would also often teach the same parables or the same issues related to the kingdom of God uh, in, at numerous times. And so it makes sense that he would teach his disciples and others about prayer more than once. And we also learned last week that there's... there's a There's a difference between their their emphasis, Luke being a Greek, a Gentile, who's come to faith in Jesus Christ, a skeptic through the ministry of the Apostle Paul, and his his view of it is more personal. So it's like, you pray to the Father. Matthew being a Jew is coming definitely from the more, the Jewish um, patriarchal society. I know everybody loves that word. I'm glad we got into that last week. Uh, He's praying from a, a Jewish family perspective, so it's our Father. Of course, that's how most of us see that part of the prayer. So first, let's start by asking this question. Kingdom. What's with that language? What's, what's with the language of the kingdom? Now, I think most of you who have been at the Rock Church or in church for any period of time or uh, have read your Bible, um, it's not exactly foreign language, right? The idea of kingdom. But I wonder, and that's why we're going to look at it today, how much of us really understand the biblical understanding of kingdom, of that word. But I also want to dig into it because I think in our culture today, to our modern ears, it's foreign. It's a bit foreign. And, and yet it shouldn't be, right? I mean, we, we know that in our world today, there is the United Kingdom, right? Over there, the Brits. Right. Everybody? Yeah, very British and proper. If you want an interesting... No, I won't even mention it. It's on Netflix. I just did. There you go. Interesting series on Brits and their behaviors and attitudes. It's kind of funny. But we also have, do you know what the formal name of the country of Canada is? The Dominion of Canada, right? We also have our friends over in uh, Arabia, uh, the Saudis, right? They, they actually, um, they, they call theirs the kingdom, right? It's the kingdom. It's, a, it's kind of bordering on, you know, definite articles, don't you think? But also the reality is, is that there are, if you do some research, you Google it, you can find this out, there are 10 countries in the world that are currently still monarchies. And so, in essence, they're kingdoms, right? But also, there is, if you remember your high school years, there are other kingdoms, aren't there? There is the animal kingdom, right? There is the plant kingdom. I didn't know this, but my wife probably would. There's the fungi kingdom. <laughs> they have their own kingdom. That's, that's actually wonderful. So, it is actually the language, the word is not foreign to us, but let me ask you this. Do you know where the idea of the word actually comes from? Kingdom? Yes. The B-I-B-L-E. That's where it comes from. And so every adaptation in our world today of kingdom, whether it's a country, right? Whether it is a, a, a kingdom of the plants and the animals, it comes from the Scripture. It comes directly from our Bibles. From Genesis to Revelation, all of the story of God centers around kingdom language. There are a total of 347 references to kingdom in your Bibles. 157 of them are in your New Testament. The first book of the Bible, of course, Genesis begins with kingdom language, right? In the beginning, God, sovereign, king, monarch. It begins with that, with a sovereign who is overall, who created all things. And Genesis begins with that. And then there's the dominion language, right? And you know these words. They're familiar to you, but I'm going to put them on screen for you. In verse 26 of Genesis 1, it says, Then God said, Let us, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion. Over the fish, over the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. That sounds like everything, to me anyway, right? So we, male and female, in the beginning, are commissioned by our sovereign, by our God, to have dominion over his creation. Still under our king, right? Still under our sovereign. That's a wonderful responsibility. So let's, let's be sure we see this. He made us literally then vice regals, right? His stewards over all of his creation. Wow, that's awesome. We should be the best environmentalists in the world, right? We need to care for his planet, for his creation. We certainly do. That's what he's called us to do. So listen, the other thing we need to see here is at this point anyway, right? In Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, there is only one kingdom right? And God has said, it is good. It is good. It is good. It is good. It is very good. Can you just imagine one kingdom under a sovereign God who is good and loving and perfect, and you have everything you would ever need, and there's no suffering, there's no pain, there's no death. Well, you and I, in Adam and Eve are under God's loving rule and reign. But you know what happened, of course. We all know what happened. Yes, there was someone else who was here before we got here, right? Someone else was here. Satan's lie that changed everything was essentially this. This was essentially what he said to Adam and Eve, if you paraphrase the beginning of chapter 3 of Genesis. Basically, he's saying to Eve with her lame husband sitting there beside her, uh, not interceding and protecting her like he should have, you can be just like God. If you'll just take this lovely, shiny fruit, whichever kind of fruit it was, and eat it, you will know what he knows. You will know everything that he knows. And therefore, you will be able to rule and reign over your own kingdom, my kingdom. They bought the lie. Well, so have we. Changed everything. Changed everything. This is where, uh, friends, I believe the vast majority of people in our world live today. Most people in the world, I'm not judging, I'm not trying to be mean or picking. We can do this as I'm going to show you today. Yes, they, they may live in a country that is, in a figurative way, a monarchy or a kingdom. But in reality, we, they, everyone lives their lives as if, I'll decide. I'm the final arbiter. This is my kingdom. It's my life. It's a terrible delusion, actually. It's a terrible delusion. The canon of Scripture, the whole of the New Testament, and all of Jesus' words in particular tell us that there is, hear this, no third kingdom. None. There's no third kingdom. There are, in fact, just two kingdoms active in this world today. I hope to show you today. I hope you know that. And and, and I believe as we know that and understand that, we will be able to approach our Heavenly Father, and when we pray, Your kingdom come, we will know what we're asking for. That would be important, right? That would be really important. So Jesus has just told His disciples, listen to this, and, and you and I to pray Our Father. Right? To pray to our sovereign that his kingdom would come. But Jesus also said these words to words to unbelieving Jews who were following him in around the same time and the same days. In John chapter eight, verse forty four, he said, You are of your father. Ouch. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. Jesus was always really nice, wasn't he? Yes, he was, because he spoke the truth in love. He was a murderer from the beginning. Why would he say that? Because he brought death to Adam and Eve and to all of creation through his lie. And does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. Wow, none, zero, not a bit. In him. When he lies, he speaks out of his character. For he is a liar. He is the father of lies. So that in brief is point number one. Your kingdom come. The, the kingdom of God come. Number two, your kingdom come. So what should we conclude from this that we've seen so far? So let me be clear. As I've already said, there's no third kingdom, none, zero in this world today. There are two kingdoms at work in our world today. There is the kingdom of God, our Father, which is good and perfect. And there is the kingdom or the dominion of darkness, light, darkness, darkness, the metaphors and pictures of Scripture are beautiful. If we or anyone chooses or believes that we are living in this third kingdom, in a kingdom that we control or that we are sovereigns of, we are deluded. We're kidding ourselves. We're kidding ourselves. And so at that point, we need to ask this question or we need to make this application statement. Choose your sovereign carefully. Be careful who you choose as your king. Um, I have a number of books on kingdom. I've been studying this actually for some time actually implanting the church. It's kind of important, right? It's important to not only understand what is the church ecclesiology, but what is the kingdom really? Because there's this, seems to be this controversy as well, are they the same thing or are they competitive? And I have a couple of books that I really, really enjoy, uh, written by a a pastor, author, uh, church planter, uh, over 20 churches planted through the network that he started in the Toronto area. His name is Jeff Christofferson. He has written two books. If you want two really good books on kingdom, he's written one called The Kingdom Matrix, which I'm going to quote from a little bit today, but also one called Kingdom First. Incredibly good books, biblically solid books. Uh, we studied them as part of Multiply C to C, our church planning network, as pastors and church planters, so that we would really be able to understand this and unpack this well. He says in his book, *The Kingdom Matrix*, these words: "There are only two spiritual realms: the kingdom of God and the dominion of darkness. There isn't a third kingdom." Watch this. Every decision we make is inspired by and advances the agenda of one of those two kingdoms. Wow. Now, I know for some of you, you're going to be like, wait a second. <laughs> Not every. Please pray about that and think about this, that this week. And as we conclude some of the application of that, there is no neutral territory. So for definition purposes, then, how should we define the kingdom of God? What would it be a, a good and basic uh, a definition, working definition for you, for me, for us as a church, for anyone who's watching or listening, what would be a good definition of, and a simple definition of the kingdom of God? What exactly, if I pray this prayer, Lord, am I signing up for? You should, we should know that, right? If we're going to pray, our Father who art in heaven, sounds all lovely, right? And then, and then we get to that part, your kingdom come, yeah, let's keep going. My daily bread, yeah. Be careful. Be Careful on that one. I'll give you a definition that I've put together, cobbled together from other people who are much smarter than me, but I think it's a good basic definition. The kingdom of God is God's active and sovereign reign through history, beginning to end, bringing about his purposes in the world through Christ Jesus. In simplest terms, the kingdom of God is what the world looks like when King Jesus gets his way. I copied that from someone else, but I really like that, right? Jesus perfectly getting his way in your heart, in your life, in my heart, in my life, and in this world. Honestly, Christian, let me ask you really quickly. Could it be more perfect if Jesus got his way for everyone? I don't think so. Do you? It couldn't be more perfect. It would only be totally, totally perfect So that's how and why we pray. That's how and why we need to pray, Your kingdom come, Father. Your will be done. Down here on earth, just like it is in heaven. Come on. You know me. I like news. I like following politics and what's going on. I really refrain as much as possible from commenting on it as a pastor, but boy, it's hard. Right? Right? Would you not, would we not like a break from this? Pray. Pray. He's the one who can do the work. Pray. Pray. Thirdly, your kingdom. So again, if we return to Genesis, we see that our sovereign father, look at this, he he promised that our rebellion against him, choosing the kingdom of darkness over the kingdom of God, he made a promise. Remember that? In Genesis chapter 3, after we had rebelled against God, after we had said, hey, we want to be king, and we bought the ridiculous lie that we could be, God promised. What did he promise? Well, I'll tell you what he promised. He promised there would be a war. He promised there would be battles. And he promised that he would lead the charge. Right? He promises there will be a battle. And speaking directly to the serpent, to Satan, in the garden, he said these words. God said these words. I will put enmity. Hello? There it is. I will put enmity. Now look, in... In in the Hebrew, in the original language, this means it could be translated strife, but it can also be war. I will cut with a sword a dividing line between, look what he says, between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise, crush your head, and all you'll do is wound his heel. What a promise. But God promised... In Genesis, there's going to be a war. He essentially also promised, and I'm going to win it. And I'm going to win this war. He promises that the offspring of a woman will crush the head of the serpent. and then we see a few thousand years later, after this promise, we see the beauty, right? Jesus Christ, sent by God, born of a virgin, the Word become flesh, enters this world to go to war for you, for me, for everyone. That's why he came. He didn't come just to preach the Sermon on the Mount so we could all go, that is lovely. He came to go to war to defeat our enemy. Such a beautiful picture. He came to defeat the dominion of darkness as he, comes in the, he arrives on the scene. You remember this. He arrives at the scene on the scene as a mature man at 30 years of age, right? And you remember what happened. He, he arrives on the scene. What's the first thing that happened? Well, he, he goes to John the Baptist, his forerunner, and he's baptized. And, and this baptism for Jesus is an anointing. The Father and the Holy Spirit are there with the Son. The Trinity is there. He is anointed for his work of ministry. And then you know what happens next, right? The exact thing that happens next is off he goes preaching the kingdom of God, right? No. No, I I came to go to war. So the Holy Spirit takes him by the hand and takes him where? Into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights and so what did he do in the wilderness when you think about it? Did, did, did he go into the wilderness and just like, okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show my disciples what, 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 what you do. is What you do is you, you pray to the Father and you fast for 40 days and 40 nights and you just hope that he'll work this out. No. That's what I think sometimes we do with this prayer. No, what Jesus did is he goes into the wilderness and he is attacked. They, they call it tempted. Are you kidding me? He, he was attacked by Satan. Three times Satan comes at him. Again, we call them temptations, but these are three attacks coming at him from every possible angle. Jesus defeats him first time, second time. Satan has one more tactic, one final tactic. And Matthew records it in chapter 4, verses 8 to 10. It says this, and again... The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Wait a second. Is he not saying by saying it this way, these are my kingdoms? These people think it's theirs. That's a joke. You and I both know. I am king of all of these domains. And he offers it to Jesus. Why? Hey, you and I both know. You're going to get rejected by your own people and you're going to get beat up and scourged and you're going to be hung on a tree. Give it up. This is, this is, way, this is way easier. I'll give these to you, liar. Liar. All these I will give to you. The battle's on, don't you think? Like, th- this, is, this can go one way or the other. Jesus responds, Be gone, Satan. For it is written, You, you too, shall worship the Lord your God, and only him shall you serve as your sovereign, as your king. Well, Jesus is speaking truth to this being. Not going to happen. We know how the story ends, right? Defeat. Right there. Some people call it a battle. Okay, you could call it a battle, but that's defeat. One of the most remarkable things about this event that is lost, I think, on many people is that this is the exact same battle that the serpent had in Genesis chapter 3 with Adam and Eve. Right? Right? Same thing. He, he, he tried the same three tests of Eve. Adam and Eve miserably failed, right? So did you. So did I before Jesus. We failed. They lost the battle. So this battle was important for this reason. Jesus won the battle. This battle had to be won. It had to be won, and it, it signals something for us. So over the next three years, what Jesus is going to do, he's he's going to drive the nail through this, through the heart of our enemy. He's going to completely destroy this person. He's going to live the perfect life that you and I cannot live. He's going to die the death on the cross, in your place, in my place, the death that we deserve that he surely doesn't. He's going to do all that. He's going to then die on the cross, and, and he's going to rise from the dead on the third day, victorious over sin, death, and who? The devil done. Fully, fully done. And all of that so that you and I can get what we don't deserve. Right? So that we can be adopted as sons and daughters of our King, so that we can serve Him I think when we understand this about the kingdom come idea and language and prayer, I think when we truly get this and understand this, I do anyway, I, I think this is helping me understand this better. I think then we, the things that Jesus sometimes said during his ministry make so much more sense. Do you remember when he went to his home synagogue, Right? And and they invited him to come home. Well, at the end of that, you know what they tried to do. They wanted to kill him. But anyway, it starts off really good, right? He comes in there, and he says these words in Luke chapter 4.11. We went through them. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. I've been anointed for this ministry. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. I love that language. And recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty, freedom. Those who are oppressed. This is, this is battle language, isn't it? This is what he came to do, and he did it. From God's perspective, he has since day one, since Adam and Eve's fall, he has seen us, you and I, as captives, enslaved to a king who is not only not him, but unlike him in the worst of ways. Our Father who is in heaven loves us too much to leave us like that, right? Under the rule and reign of one whose only goal is to see you dead for eternity without Jesus Christ. That's a lot of love. So as we go to conclusion or toward our conclusion today, this is why we pray kingdom come. This is why we pray that, right? We're praying for two, primarily two things. Hear this. Primarily two things. Kingdom destruction, the kingdom of darkness. We're praying for its destruction, but we're also praying for kingdom expansion. We're, we're praying for, for God to do His work so that more people can be welcomed into the kingdom of God and not be lost for all of eternity. So this, my friends, is the role of the church. And as all good people of the Rock know, the church is not a what? Building, place, or an event. It is us, the body of Jesus Christ. It is you and me. Another thing that Jesus said in his ministry that applies to this is very interesting. You all know this, right? In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus got to the point where he said to his disciples, "'Who do people say that I am?' Then he personalized it. Who do you say that I am? And Peter, of course, finally waking up to the reality of something where he's right the first time something comes out of his mouth, because his heavenly father told him. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus' response is awesome. He says, I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. Look at this. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So, so right here, this is where we get our name for our church, right? This is why we, we, we call ourselves The Rock, right? It's based on this passage from Matthew. It's the first time that it, anywhere in the New Testament, the word ecclesia, called out ones, gathered ones, where we get the word church from is used by Jesus, right? It's used by the one who said he would do the building of his church. Amen. Thank you. It's not on me. It's not on you. He's doing it. He's the one who said he would do it. And basically, Jesus says, and I think this is important, look how he says, how he says he will build his church. He basically looks at Peter and he says, Peter, which is Petros, a tiny little pebble of a rock, right? He says, Peter, you know, based on your testimony, based on anyone's testimony in me of faith that I am the Christ, I am the Son of the living God, based on that rock, massive Petra in the Greek, I will build my church. Now watch this. And what? And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I mean, I don't know about you, but this is so often taken and misunderstood. I, I, I think I've thought this. I thought this for half of my Christian life. I, I think some of us would, would read that and, and we would think, oh, good. So when we go out into this hostile world, into the dominion of darkness, right? And and we try to proclaim Jesus and, and, you know, preach the gospel that that God's going to protect us from the enemy, from the attack of the devil. I mean, have you not thought that? Like, I have. Well, that's true to a certain extent because he's defeated. He's toothless. He still gets in our way, doesn't he? He still likes to spin around in our heads. That's not what it's about at all. It's actually, again, look at this, battle language. Jesus is commissioning His church in Matthew 16 to to go to war. It's a beautiful picture, though. Jesus is saying that His church, His disciples, will do exactly what He's been doing, storming the gates of hell. (laughs) That's what He's suggesting here. And what He's saying is is that if, if you pray to your heavenly Father... Who you trust as your father that he will cause his kingdom to come, if you pray that, God will go before you. And he will storm the gates of hell, he will push them down to set the, the captives free. And guess what? You'll get to do. I'll use a ba- baseball analogy you'll get to bat cleanup, welcoming the captives who've been set free home into the kingdom of God proclaiming the kingdom of God to them. Well, there's actually an active role for us to play in that too, isn't there? We need to go and preach it, amen? But that's the the main thing we need to do. We need to just go into this world and and preach it, preach the kingdom of God. That's how we storm the gates of hell. Not all these other ways that sometimes we think are pretty smart. Like church planters, I got to tell you, they're full of really smart ideas on how to reach the world, right? Like we, we are, okay? Most of them, we fall flat on our face, and all of a sudden we go, all right, it's Jesus who's building His church. It's God who's doing that work. We follow in behind. So listen, in conclusion, I think the battle for you and I here today is twofold at least. Twofold at least. First, we have to ask this question. Who's your sovereign? Honestly, who is your sovereign day to day? Who is your sovereign? Whose kingdom are you praying for? Whose kingdom are you advancing? Jeff Christopherson also says this in the Kingdom Matrix, which I found very challenging. He said, It is possible to participate in kingdom expansion and unintentionally be participating in the expansion of the kingdom of darkness. Yeah, well, how does that, what does that look like? Stop and think about it. Stop and think about it. I used to, in my uh, business days, even as a Christian, I have repented. Please forgive me. But I used to be a motivational speaker. Uh, In business, I would speak to crowds of people about motivation, positive mental attitude. As a Christian, I've repented. I'm sorry. But I want to tell you this. It does work. It does work. You know, being laser-focused and putting a goal out there of something that you want to purchase or attain or get to in this life and being laser-focused and maybe even praying into it, even as an unbeliever. You know, God, if this really was to come through and I was to become very, very rich or whatever, I might believe in you. <laughs> okay, that's not funny. But I preach that I I encourage people, and and I want to tell you that it does work. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, be careful what you pray for, right? Be careful. There's really no such thing as your kingdom. Remember that. Keep that especially in mind as we go into next week's part of the prayer, daily bread. Oh, boy, can that begin to focus on me and my needs, and my kingdom. I won't get into the message for next week because Rudy's going to get to preach that for you next week for the first time at our church, but I would suggest to you that that nourishment that we need is about kingdom work. Secondly, I see uh, this quite often in our culture today. I see many well-meaning Christians today, listen, in an effort to reach the lost, the marginalized. What I see happening is is an awful lot of people from the church, in the church, uh, aligning themselves with social justice issues, which are in some cases very important, yes, but frankly also individuals who are clearly not about expanding the kingdom of God at all. It's not in their heart. They're about expanding the kingdom of darkness. We need to remember... The road is wide. That leads to destruction. The gate is narrow. That leads to life. Our Father, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is about storming the gates of hell. And His vehicle, yes, His vehicle is the church. But the role of the church, which is you and I here today is to do what Jesus and all of the apostles did. Read the gospels, read the book of Acts. What did they do? First and foremost, proclaim the kingdom of God. Preach the gospel. Not just walk along the cult with the culture trying to do good and I'll leave you with this one last quote from Jeff Christofferson as a challenge for you this morning. He said this, when the words that I speak are true, this is the only source. Not your mind, not your heart, not my mind, not my heart, these words. When I speak words that are true, no matter how difficult they may be, the kingdom of God is forcefully advanced. I think that's, kingdom language. So we need to pray in conclusion. I'm going to put the words from Matthew's gospel back up on screen for you one more time as I pray into this. Pray with me, would you?